Dealing effectively with international terrorists requires trying to understand the motivation behind all the carnage they cause. Loretta Napoleone has been studying such groups for years and is a top advisor to Western leaders on strategies to combat them. She says we underestimate just how modern and well-organized the forces behind the Islamic State really are. So therefore we thought, well, this is not really a strong enemy. This is a, an irrational enemy. These are psychopaths. So they manage to fool us. We'll examine what ISIS actually wants in just a minute. And correspondent Martin Fletcher tells us how he's able to explore the personal side of life in the world's hotspots now that he's retired. I felt my luck had run out, and I had this sense that, you know, how long can you be lucky for? You know, I've been to the most beautiful places at the worst of times. Now I'd like to go back and just enjoy them. Life as a war reporter and analyzing ISIS. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Longtime TV correspondent Martin Fletcher reminds us what it was like to report on the war in Bosnia coming up in the hour ahead. Today, people are wondering how a terrorist organization like the Islamic State is able to take root in the modern interconnected world, while the attacks their supporters have inflicted remind us of medieval-style brutality. Loretta Napoleone advises political leaders from the Middle East and Europe on combating international terrorism. She also chairs the financing group at the Club de Madrid, It's a group that devises new strategies against jihadists like the Islamic State or ISIS. Among her books are the bestseller Terror Incorporated and The Islamist Phoenix. She joins us now from New York to explain what she's learned about ISIS and how it sees itself in the Middle East. Loretta Napoleone, welcome to Travel with Rick Steves. Well, thank you for inviting me. Your book, The Islamist Phoenix, talks about the rise and the workings of ISIS, and in it, you write that when it comes to fighting terrorism, know your enemy is the most important adage. How so? It's very important to know who the enemy is because otherwise you can't have a a winning strategy. Unfortunately, we have presented the Islamic State as something that is not. We thought that they were similar to the Taliban's, that they wanted to go back to the caves, (laughs) to the 6th century Arabia. In reality, they're very modern, they're very pragmatic, and they're also extremely political. So they're quite sophisticated, more maybe than we appreciate. When we, when we refer to this group, there's a little bit of confusion. People say ISIS or ISIL or Daesh. Uh, what do you prefer and why? I prefer the Islamic State because this is what they call themselves. Uh, then we can call them ISIS. Okay. But the, the fact that we have so many definitions is also indicative of the fact that we don't really know who they are. It's confusing, so that's why I think we should stick with one definition, which is their definition, which is the Islamic State. When we look to the roots of this challenge, it goes back actually 100 years, doesn't it? 1916 is when the French and the British drew lines in the Middle East that really established uh, countries that, and these lines survive to this day. Uh, How has that contributed to the problem we're dealing with? I would say that this is the beginning of What we're seeing today is the fact that we went to the Middle East. I mean, I'm talking about the European powers. And we drew a line on the sun saying this side is this country and this side is this other country. And all these countries were very much under our control. So this was a form of political colonization by putting certain people in place to rule these countries, which were particularly friendly to the West. These kind of construction do not reflect the the culture 
the social structure of those regions. Uh, so there is really no difference between northern Syria and northern Iraq. It's the same kind of uh, population, it's the same kind of uh, tribal community, which was split in two. So that's what the Islamic State is actually trying to do, is to go back to before uh, 1916, before you know, the presence of the West. They're, they're trying to redraw the borders as they were more sensitive to the religious and ethnic makeup of the region before the French and the British drew those lines in 1916? Yes, but also, and that's fundamental, they want to be modern, so they have a nationalistic agenda. And in this nationalistic agenda, there is the birth of the first true Arab and Muslim nation since you know, the fall of the caliphate. So it is the implementation of the Muslim political utopia. What is that exactly? The caliphate has nothing to do with what the caliphate was <laughs> in the past. It is the modern version of the caliphate. But what is important in the concept of the caliphate is, is the fact that it reproduces a political identity, uh, which is the only political identity uh, that these nations, uh, these people, these tribes uh, actually have. Because since the fall of the caliphate, there's been uh, colonization, there's been domination of the Ottoman Empire. So there was always a, a foreign power which was ruling these countries. So that's why it's so important, uh, the concept of the caliphate. So the Islamic State does not want to be perceived as a tyrannical entity. It wants to be perceived as a choice, mm-hmm. so to have the consensus of the population. So this is a challenge for us from the West, is to understand what is going on with the rise of the Islamic State from a Muslim and an Arab perspective, from an insider's perspective with that culture. Can you share, because you've traveled there and you've talked to people on in, in all walks of life in that regard, how a reasonable person within Islam might reasonably defend the the goal of ISIS without necessarily defending its tactics, but but how do they relate to Arabs and Muslims, and and how might might their propaganda be so effective? Well, I would say that the elite of the Islamic State uh, was uh, very skillful in uh, presenting themselves not as an occupying power, as the Taliban, for example, were for the local population, but you know, as a power that cared about the population. So uh, in the region that they conquered right from the beginning, they fixed the road, uh, they did social works, uh, they involved the population in the running of uh, the resources, they handed over most of the resources to the local population, to the tribal mm-hmm. leader in order to exploit those, those resources. So to a certain extent, they they convince, I would say, the local population that they were better rulers uh, than the previous dictators. So we're talking about the regime of Assad, for example, or we're talking about the regime of uh, Alawi in Iraq, which technically speaking was not <laughs> truly democratic because it was discriminating against the Sunnis. So this was the tactic. Loretta Napoleone is an author, journalist, and advisor to governments on the workings of international terrorist organizations. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, she's giving us a look into the emergence of ISIS. Among her books are Terror Incorporated and The Islamist Phoenix, The Islamic State and the Redrawing of the Middle East. Her latest is Merchants of Men. It outlines how kidnapping and trafficking in refugees is funding international terrorism. Loretta, in your book The Islamist Phoenix, you wrote that 
ISIS is to Muslims what Israel is to Jews. Can you explain that a little bit? Yes, what they did, they uh, projected to the Muslim population, to the Sunni population, the image of the entity that could deliver them, that could bring deliverance from centuries of oppression. And they did it by going back to the origins, basically, of Islam, which is the creation of the caliphate, in a particular part of the world, in a land that was chosen by the prophet to be the land of you know, the caliphate. So there are a lot of similarities with the construction of the state of Israel. And to be honest, if you look uh, since 1916, these are the only two uh, entities that were created outside the drawing of the map of the Middle East uh, done you know, by Western powers, Israel, of course, and the, the caliphate. How is their leader, al-Baghdadi, seen? Al-Baghdadi is an extremely private individual. In fact, you know, I think we have only two pictures of him. <laughs> only when he declared the birth of the caliphate, uh, which is in June 2014, and it's completely different from the typical Western leader that is on TV all the time, that is, you know, constantly showing his face, but also completely different from the, the typical tyrannical, I would say, ruler of the Arab world, something like Assad or even Saddam Hussein that presents this cult of the image everywhere. And it's done on purpose, of course. It's done on purpose because the leader is not important uh, what they want people to believe is that the leader is simply a symbol. What is important is themselves, is the population, is the ruling uh, through a structure, which is a structure chosen by the population. It feels like you can make a sympathetic case or, or explain the reasons behind or try to understand the goals of the Islamic State, but still it's a brutal regime with, with horrific killings, just ignoring all the laws of civility and decency between nations. It seems almost strange to consider this, but if everybody got out of the way and ISIS was left to create its state and establish its state in the Middle East, what would it eventually look like if the threat against them was taken away and they were left to their own devices? Would it be expansive? Would it mellow out? Or would it be the hellish reality that we see on TV? Well, it's very difficult to say because we don't know how things may evolve if there is a pacification of there and the Islamic State managed to maintain a presence. What we can say is this, that the application of the Sharia of the Islamic State is not more brutal than the application of the Sharia in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia actually is one of our allies. I think we are extremely hypocritical and we are perceived uh, I'm talking about how they look at us, how we're perceived by the Arabs and also by the Muslim in general because we condemn all the atrocities of the Islamic State but we do commit a similar atrocity ourselves I mean bombing, uh, the bombing campaign has killed a vast, vast number of civilians so <laughs> How do we justify that? So I think the local population inside the caliphate 
has been under war rule for so long, pillaged by dictators, by warlords, so criminal gangs for so long that the simple fact that the Islamic State moved in and actually brought about a certain kind of normality, which is like you know, having electricity or running water, for them, again, I'm looking at from their point of view, it was a step in the right direction. So that is what we have to look at. What would happen in 10 years if the Islamic State managed to consolidate its position? I don't think that could maintain that kind of brutality because, of course, in time of peace, you do not need that kind of brutality. Also, that kind of brutality is not accepted. The threshold of accepting violence among people is much, much lower. So people will not accept that kind of violence. But if you're coming out of a civil, brutal war, if you have lived in those conditions for years, then, of course, violence becomes acceptable if brings normality. Stay with us for more with Loretta Napoleoni on understanding the workings of Islamic State terrorism. That's in just a minute on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. Or by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Martin Fletcher reflects on being a reporter during the war in Bosnia back in the 1990s. That's in just a bit on Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, let's continue our illuminating conversation with Loretta Napoleoni. She's a leading international expert on terrorism and its financing. And she's written The Islamist Phoenix to help us better understand how ISIS jihadists have found new ways of exploiting problems in the Middle East in hopes of reestablishing a caliphate. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Mary's on the line from Baltimore with a question. Hi, Mary. Hi, Rick. How are you? Doing good. Do you have a comment for Loretta? Yeah, I, thank you so much for having her on your show. I think it's a very interesting and important perspective. I just wanted to know what she thought is if there was a potential for a hybrid between secular democracy and the Islamic tradition. And as Americans, are we too quick to, you know, judge Islamic governments based on our culture instead of from the perspective of their culture? That's a good question. Loretta? Well, I think, yes, of course, there are possibility of a hybrid. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that due to modern technology also, it would be much easier for people to become more acquainted with Western uh, democracy principles. Uh, what is happening in Turkey is already, I think, you know, quite upsetting. Because for sure, if you compare Turkey today and what was Turkey two years ago when the Islamic State came about, there has been a distinct destabilization inside Turkey. There has also been a repressive response. There's been a progressive Islamization. So we're moved away from democracy. <laughs> and Turkey was a society that moderate elements of the Middle East would look to for inspiration and as a, as a model. And today, Turkey is heading in a direction that is not towards stability and pluralism, that's for sure. Yeah. If you are a Muslim today, which country would you look in order to use it as a country to emulate. So what is the country that the reasonable um, Western-looking Muslim in the Middle East would look to for, for inspiration or as a model? There isn't. 
There isn't. There isn't. Egypt is no longer that. Turkey is no longer that. Saudi Arabia is certainly not. And those are the leading Muslim powers. Yeah. yeah. So maybe you could say that Iran, being a theocracy, right, where people actually vote, is the closest thing that we have to Western democracy, which is absurd. It's really a big change. Mary, thanks for your call. Thank you so much. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Loretta Napoleoni, and Loretta's the author of The Islamist Phoenix, The Islamic State and the Redrawing of the Middle East. Loretta, when we think about the roots of these problems that we're dealing with today, we talked about the lines being redrawn in a colonial kind of way. We've talked about the need for strongmen and dictators to hold these countries together that really shouldn't originally have been created in the, with the uh, uh, geography that they've got. In recent years, we've had 9-11, we've had Arab Spring, we've had broken states like Iraq, Syria, and Libya, and we've got now the movement to the right in Turkey. How is this impacting the whole dynamic in the Middle East, the 9-11 and Arab Spring in particular? I think the response to 9-11 was you know, the last attempt of you know, the West, and in particular the United States, but the Brits were very much in it also, to relaunch the supremacy of the West. The idea was, you know, we have won the Cold War, therefore, you know, the world will be ruled by us, uh, not necessarily in negative terms, but we are the model. We are you know, the winner, and everybody will want to be like us. <laughs> but the truth is, uh, it's, it's not like that at all. On the contrary, these are people that reacted to the way we went about after 9-11, and they reacted with violence. They took arms against us. So we perpetrated, to a certain extent, the message, uh, the violence and terror message of 9-11 with our uh, military intervention. And then coming out of that, we had this hopeful time where in the West, we thought with the Arab Spring and the rise of pluralism and, and modern sort of uh, sensibilities, Western sensibilities. But the result of that is broken states. So how has that led to the further dislocation of, of things in the Middle East? The Arab Spring was the response uh, of young people to President Obama's speech in Cairo after his election. I mean, President Obama was an inspiration, not only for the Americans, but for the entire world. Uh, people really believed that after the dark uh, ruling of the Bush administration, the Blair administration, there was going to be democracy. Democracy was going to prevail and win. And of course, it's not true. It's absolutely not true. This, these countries are countries which are ruled by dictatorial regimes which pretend, pretend to be democracies because, you know, Mubarak was in power for 24 years. <laughs> he was yeah. re-elected. Mm, yeah. So, I mean, these are not democracies at all. And we should have known that. We should have known. So if you get re-elected for 24 years, uh, that means you control uh, not only the electoral system, but you control society. <laughs> so there's been so, a history of um, non-democratic leaders supported oh, by the United States for our purposes. Absolutely. The Arab Spring was the response of the young people to that speech, and they thought, my gosh, and this is also very much what's happened in Syria, they thought uh, this new America will come and help us. But no, <laughs> America didn't, uh, because he can't. To put it simply, 
1916 created borders that required states that didn't make any sense ethnically, and then they're held together only with dictatorial or strongmen, dictators supported in a lot of cases by the West, and then with the hope of democracy with the Arab Spring, you throw away these dictators, and then you're dealing with the borders that were created 100 years ago, and it's just not viable without a strongman, and you get broken states. And when you have broken states, you've got all sorts of frustrations and hopelessness and chaos that can lead to the rise of something like ISIS. Yes, but this was perfectly predictable. There is not the possibility to bring about democracy in a country which has been ruled by dictators for 24 years uh, that has been accepted by the West. So you either have a broken state, as is the case of Libya, where now we have 1,200 armed organizations and we have three governments in place, (laughs) or the alternative is Egypt, where you have substitute uh, part of the ruling elite, dictatorial, corrupted elite, uh, with another one. Journalist Loretta Napoleone is an expert on international terrorism, and she's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She's a former Fulbright scholar with degrees from Johns Hopkins University and the London School of Economics. Ms. Napoleone was born in Rome and gained access to Italy's Red Brigade paramilitary movement. She now advises world leaders on combating international terrorism from her bases in London and Montana. Napoleone has written numerous books on this topic, including Terror Incorporated, Merchants of Men, and Insurgent Iraq, Al-Zakari and the New Generation. Today we're talking about the issues raised in her recent book about ISIS titled The Islamist Phoenix, Islamic State, and the Redrawing of the Middle East. You know, we've been struggling with this problem so long and we don't seem to be making any progress. It seems to me it would be potentially helpful to actually listen to what are the demands or the grievances of people who are angry in the Middle East with the precondition that you protect the security of Israel and then honestly deal with with what is the root causes of all this anger. Are there clear root causes that we could have something to deal with to to help take away? Yes, I mean, I think um, their grievances uh, are very much based on inequality. So there is a very small uh, elite, which is very wealthy, uh, which controls everything, basically. And it's corrupted, of course, so corruption is the rule. So if you look at how the Islamic State has presented itself uh, to the people inside the caliphate who is addressing this kind of grievances, so we do not have um, an elite inside uh, the caliphate that controls the resources. We have the tribal leaders. So the tribal leaders is the closest thing that we can get to the people. So the tribal leader acts as a sort of corporation within the caliphate and runs the resources, oil fields or agricultural land. And then the tribal leaders uh, will distribute also the revenues, uh, will decide uh, who is going to get what, who is going to do what. So it is the closest thing we can get to the concept of Western democracy than we actually uh, have. People do not vote, of course, but why voting anyway if your vote doesn't count? (laughs) Because, I mean, Egyptians did vote for 24 years, right? Mm -hmm. But it was pointless. So 
to a certain extent, this kind of approach of the Islamic State is perceived as more transparent than the previous approach, where they were pretending that there were elections. What about the treatment of women? That's something very hard to um, Well, I mean, the treatment of women, I think, is an interesting point. These are tribal populations where women have always played second fiddle to men. We're not talking about Damascus or Baghdad in the 1980s. We're talking about today. There has been a process of Islamization very strong since the introduction of the sanction against Saddam Hussein and then Syria also. So, I mean, women have been the first victim of this process of Islamization. So you're saying that in the 1980s, women in Damascus and Baghdad were more uh, free? Absolutely. I mean, I used to go to Baghdad for work a lot, and the women were not veiled. Mm-hmm. So it was a completely, it was a secular society. Let's not forget Saddam Hussein was a secular mm-hmm. society. So things have changed because, of course, here you are. You're facing the sanction. You have huge unemployment. Uh, what's the best way to have unemployment? You, from one day to the next, say the women cannot work anymore. <laughs> so if you have a 25% unemployment, you, know, you end up you know, having maybe you know 12. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Loretta Napoleoni about the Islamist Phoenix, about the Islamic State. And Loretta, this has been really interesting for me and a little bit nerve-wracking for me because I'm trying, with your help, to gain a perspective not from the West looking at Islamic State, but from within the Arab world and from in the Muslim world at what might be the rationale for what we see in the press as just angry people with, with masks cutting off the heads of journalists. I mean, there are horrific publicity stunts and there are horrible things going on within this Islamic State as it is embroiled in a, a war for its birth or its existence or whatever. Can you talk a little bit about acknowledging this horrific dimension of it, but the value of trying to see it from that internal perspective as we started out this discussion? Because when you want to fight an enemy, you have to know your enemy. Yeah, I think they did They did it on purpose. I'm 100% convinced that what they want uh, still today is to scare us. Uh, the more you're afraid of your enemy, the more you think this enemy is strong. So violence is, is very much an instrument uh, to, to scare people. That's what terrorism is all about. And they've been quite effective at that. Yeah, absolutely. I think they've been extremely effective because at the beginning... Uh, we really thought uh, that this was the new evil. <laughs> the beheading of James Foley, I think he ranks uh, very close to the knocking down of the Twin Towers. In terms of propaganda impact, uh, it went viral, that video, in no time at all. Uh, it happened also in a completely different time in history. I mean, imagine if 9-11 would have done when social media were present, but they weren't. So... Why did they do it? And then, interesting enough, uh, why did they stop doing it? Uh, so clearly, these are tactics. And the tactics was to lure the U.S. into that conflict uh, because by doing that, they could uh, project the image of people that protect the local population against uh, the United States. 
In terms of punishment inside Islamic State, uh, like, you know, crucifixion, for example, that, again, is part of the Sharia law, the application of the Sharia law. It is violent. It is absolutely brutal. But, again, in Saudi Arabia, every year they chop more heads. Uh, I mean, they actually literally with a sword in a square, they chop people's heads. This is the execution. So it happens in Saudi Arabia, and <sighs> we just say, well, that's the way they do it there. It happens yeah. in Islamic State, and we take it as yeah. a, a personal affront. Exactly, because it was done on purpose, because this was the tactic. The tactic was, uh, we are brutal, we are sober. You know, the Nazis did the same thing in Germany in the 1930s. When finally, you know, they took power, their aim was to terrorize the population because terror makes people insecure and it's a good tactic. If you are fighting a war of any kind of war, including a propaganda war. So we were so busy looking at the brutality, thinking that these people are animals, they are like the Taliban. So therefore, we thought, well, this is not really a strong enemy. <laughs> this is a, an irrational enemy. This, these are psychopaths. Uh, so we will win because there is not a true grievance here. These people are crazy. So they manage to fool us. And a strong point you make in your book is, while they seem medieval and simply animalistic, so, they're actually very modern and very pragmatic. Yeah, they are, extremely. They, they manipulated those hostages uh, very, very well. <laughs> they got money uh, from the ones that were worth uh, more alive than dead, and then you know, they, they beheaded the others. They were worth uh, more dead than alive. No other group, terrorist group, uh, criminal group, has ever done anything like that before. Well, you've spent decades at, I'm sure, great uh, expense and risk to yourself to, to become an insider on this issue. And uh, the book is fascinating. And Loretta Napoleoni, thank you for writing The Islamist Phoenix. And thank you for sharing with us some of the things that you've learned from your studies. And if we could close with just, you put a lot of effort into this book. What do you want Americans who read this book to take away from it? What's, what's your goal? I would like Americans to know the truth. I think that's the goal. If we know the truth, uh, we know our enemy. So we will know uh, what's the best strategy or we will develop uh, a better strategy to fight because at the end of the day, this is an enemy. So the best way to deal with ISIS is to know them better. And that's been your agenda. Yeah. Loretta Napoleoni, thank you so much and uh, best wishes. Thank you. Loretta Napoleoni was granted access to negotiators, security services, and even former hostages for her analysis of how jihadists have turned kidnapping and refugee trafficking into a multi-billion dollar enterprise. Her newest book is called Merchants of Men. You'll find a web link to it and her TED Talk on terrorism with this week's show. Look in the radio section of ricksteves.com. 
Journalist Martin Fletcher revisits his work as a war reporter in Bosnia. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK. After more than 30 years reporting from such hotspots as Rwanda, Gaza, Cyprus, Bosnia, and Kosovo, Martin Fletcher has concluded that it takes a good novel to fully explore the personal side of life in a war zone. After Martin retired as NBC's Tel Aviv bureau chief in 2010, he started writing novels based on his experiences as a reporter and his family history with the Holocaust. His latest book is called The War Reporter. It expands on what he observed reporting from Sarajevo during the Yugoslav Wars back in the 1990s when Ratko Mladic brought about Europe's worst genocide since Hitler. Martin, thanks for being with us. Hi, Rick. Thank you. Tell us, uh, just to set up the conversation here, what's your novel all about? Well, I always wanted to write a book about what it's like to be a war correspondent in a jeep with three guys driving around, never knowing quite what's going to happen. So that's what I wanted to do. The book that I wrote it takes place in, in the Balkans, which was a very important place for me personally, especially the siege of Sarajevo. And it's about a journalist and his team, what happens to them. They're, they're pursuing a story, ends in tragedy. And the rest of the novel really is about how the main characters fight back to, re- to reclaim their lives, if you like. And that's through work, through love. <laughs> and, I, mm. and I guess that's how I see the world. Martin, you've covered, for 30 years, you've been in hotspots all over the world. You could have set your novel anywhere. Why did you choose Sarajevo? Well, first of all, Sarajevo was an extraordinary place. In the middle of Europe, a town under siege, bombarded Mm. for four years, you know, in our lifetime. It's extraordinary right there. You know, we think of Stalingrad, but, you know, in our lives, in in modern times, it was just very weird to be there. And I spent a lot of time there. And there's one little boy that I met there that I wanted to tell his story. And I told his story on NBC News, but I always wondered what happened to him. And I wished that I, I had continued to basically help him find his family because he was a he was lost this kid was abandoned in the hospital for two years and i wish i always wished i'd helped him find his family so in the novel i did that <laughs> through my fictional character to what degree is the book fiction and, and how much of it is non-fiction well that little bit of it was kind of therapeutic in a way you know i mm-hmm. imagine all kinds of wonderful things that i did in real life but of course i never did them but it's not at all an autobiographical novel even though, obviously, that, that's the clear inference of me writing a book called The War Reporter, but it's not autobiographical. But I did draw upon my experiences covering conflicts all around the world to give the book an authenticity. It was very important for me for the reader to really be there in the place as it's happening, and I, I hope I pulled that off. But what I really wanted to do is simply write fiction, tell a story. I always knew I was going to write about this little boy with the hair lip, who we found in the mm-hmm. Sarajevo hospital during the siege, whose parents had dropped him off for a hair lip operation, and then they went home to their village. And the day they dropped him off was the day or the night that the siege of Sarajevo began. And for two years, they couldn't get back into the hospital. So when we met this little boy, even the nurses didn't know his name. Mm. They'd all changed, and the records office had been bombed and burnt. So no one knew who this boy was. He'd had no visitors for two years. And so when I met him and told his story on NBC... First of all, I was very moved emotionally, I have mm-hmm. to say, when I met the boy. And I went to visit him every day that I was in Sarajevo. 
he never had a visitor the entire time he was there. Mm. And that always stuck with me. And I, I always knew I wanted to write about him, but I didn't ever think I would begin a novel with his story. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Martin Fletcher, and we know Martin Fletcher from his 30 years as a correspondent for NBC. And he's written a novel called The War Reporter, set in former Yugoslavia. Martin, a big character in the book is the reporter Tom Lane, and he's dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. Is that a common affliction that journalists deal with? I mean, we hear about it with soldiers, but how does PTSD involve journalists? Well, you know, that's a good question. We always know about the first responders who get post-traumatic stress disorder, like the policemen, medics, soldiers, firemen. So post-traumatic stress disorder among those kinds of people is, is accepted and it's legitimate and it's real. It's not so legitimate among journalists because journalists mm. always have the choice of not going there. You know, if you're going to suffer from something, then the question is, so why go? But the, the reality is that journalists do suffer from those same kinds of things. And in fact, there's a lot of research being done right now. How does it show itself in a reporter? Well, wh- when I wrote the character, the book Tom Lane, you know, the war reporter, it was important for me to get everything right, you know. So I had the character Tom Lane, who something terrible happens to him and his team, and he gets post-traumatic stress disorder. So basically, you, you're just in shock. You lose concentration. You often seek solace somewhere else in drink, drugs, sex, whatever it is, to, you know, to an exorbitant and an exaggerated way. And you, you become lonely. You can't revisit that place where the pain stems from. And it affects your life and the people around you. So it's a very real, very damaging mm-hmm. thing. The way to confront it is talk about it. Hmm. When you suffer from a terrible trauma, you can't recover from it unless you deal with it and talk about it. It won't just go away by itself. And of course, most journalists are cynical mm. and uh, you know, just deny they have a problem. Can you have just a little bit of it? Yeah, <laughs> I'd say I'd say I have a little bit of it. You know, yeah. I mean, certainly in varying degrees. I don't suffer in any way badly, but I certainly mm. wake up at night and I have nightmares and um, certain things that happened to me which were really, really bad and dangerous. Every so often, a little detail would come back, and I'd remember, oh yeah, there was a cow, you know, mm. cow mooing. Mm-hmm. Those are classic symptoms of post-traumatic stress. Martin Fletcher has won five Emmys, among other major press awards, for his reporting from many of the world's conflict zones. In retirement, he's turned to writing novels, inspired by his experiences. His latest takes place in Bosnia during the 1990s. It's called The War Reporter. He also wrote about the people he met on a walk all along Israel's coastline in Walking Israel. His website is martinfletcher.net and includes links to his reports as a special correspondent for PBS. Gary has a question for Martin on the listener line at 877-333-7425. Hi, Gary. Uh, hi, Rick and Martin. How you doing? Great. Yeah, I was wondering if Martin ever got comfortable in a war zone while doing his reporting, or do you have to retain a certain level of fear to remain safe? You know, Gary, that, that's it's a great question. You, you've got to be careful all the time, and you've always got okay. to be, understand the dangers of, of what's going on around you. But I wouldn't say right. fear is, is part of it. It's just a matter of being aware and reacting quickly and, you know, putting safety above all else. You know, there's a sense when you go on a story that you've got to get this last shot. You've got to go down the road, you know. And I always find myself saying to myself, the minute I really, when everybody around me is saying, we have to do this, we have to do this, you know, that's when I say, you know what, we've got enough. Hmm. Have you ever put yourself in a position where while you were doing it, you thought, maybe I shouldn't have done this? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Look, the worst thing that happened to me, and, it, and it's, I've written about it in my first book, 
was when I got caught inside a minefield, you know, in Cyprus. My sound man was killed. He was blown up standing right next to me. Oh. And so was the correspondent, and other people were blown up. And uh, by a miracle, nothing happened to me. So I've been yeah. in that. That was the worst situation. But, you know, when you go into war zones, it's unpredictable, obviously. And um, you try to be careful, but eventually everybody has a harrowing experience. You know, I have at least half a dozen friends of mine who've been killed, good friends. Martin, wow. I, I read that you said you were stepping down or deciding to retire because you had a sense that your luck had run out. That's true. I began my first book. I don't want to push it particularly, but breaking news. The first, I wrote on the first page that I, I felt my luck had run out, and I had this sense that, you know, how long can you be lucky for? And so that was one of the, one of the key reasons I, I stopped doing it. Can you be a good war correspondent without taking risks? No, to be honest. I, I mean, eventually, you know, you can certainly be a good war correspondent without wanting to take risks. Right. But if, you, if you're there, things happen around you, you know. It's a common phrase that to get the best stuff, you've got to be close. And, I, you know, I began my career as a cameraman. So there's no, none of this sort of standing in the bar and, you know, asking somebody else what happened. You've got to be in the, you, you know, the closer you are, the better it is. And uh, that's what I did. I would bet that just the statistical danger of being a, a photojournalist is, is, is the highest. It is, because you've got to be there. I mean, I have two very close friends, each of whom was, was brilliant. One in, in Asia, Neil Davis, and one in Africa, Mohammed Amin. They, everybody knew these two people. They were veterans, experienced, and they both died. They were both killed, you know, in the end, because their yeah. luck ran out. And so that's, you know, when I was at 60, I thought, you know what? <laughs> other people can <laughs> do this. Let's call it good, yeah. yeah. I've been there, done that. Gary, thanks so much for your call. Thanks for taking me. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Martin Fletcher. His new book is the novel The War Reporter. You know, Martin, when I when I think about your work as a war correspondent, I'm just concerned about the state of correspondence in the journalism business. My sense is there are there's less money being spent on correspondence in in far flung places and in dangerous corners, and there's more money being spent on on good looking anchor people who command a huge salary. Is there a connection there at all that you're concerned about as a journalist? I used to think I was pretty good looking, actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, there, I know that's a. I mean, that's a very important point. It's it's different. There's far fewer foreign correspondents today. The ones who get sent to places more often are those anchors you're talking about. You know, I started talking about major foreign stories. They're no longer reported by the correspondents for the most part. They're what I called um, APVs, anchor promotion vehicles. Hmm. You know, the anchors get sent off and they, they do their thing, and it becomes a little bit more theater than it, is, than it is real practical reporting. And I think that's sad. The quality takes a hit when we have that dynamic. Actually, the quality of what they do is pretty good. They're very heavily produced. You know, it's, it right. looks great. But the quality of the reporting right. is very, very different. We have some great reporters who do great work, really do. But what's different is that today the foreign the war reporters are often in, in Mexico, in the Middle East, we've become targets. I mean, people are actually trying to kill us. Is that right? So that's new. Yeah, no, that's new. You know, hostages in, in the Middle East. and I would think the rise of social media and, and camera phones has also changed things. Well, it does. I mean, if you get caught, I mean, I've been caught a few times, and the, the people who I caught me had no idea who I was. Today, all they've got to do is Google your name, and they, they know exactly that I'm a Jewish guy living in Israel. You know, that's not really good news. But right. the, one of the um, changes is that because it's become so dangerous, most, certainly the network people, really don't go to those places without bodyguards. Mm -hmm. There's a whole new business of former special forces soldiers from the States, from Britain, who accompany journalists. And that limits what we can do in the field because they'll say to you, look, that's just too dangerous. Whereas when I was doing it, 
you know, we were just a, on a wing and a prayer, really, but mm -hmm. we were able to do more in-depth reporting because there was just me, my cameraman, my, my, my producer, as opposed to a cast of six or seven people. Do you generally travel with an interpreter? That would add more to the bulkiness of the, of the team? Generally, you'd have an interpreter. You'll have a local fixer type, you know, somebody who knows the mm -hmm. area. You'll have a driver. So, you know, this can become very unwieldy. So what I used to love, and that's what I wrote about in, in The War Reporter, was just three guys in a Jeep. It's a bit anarchic. You know, you leave the hotel in the morning. You have no idea what's going to happen to you during the day. And at night time, you come back with a story for the evening nightly news. I would imagine there'd be two general kinds of reporting. You can be embedded in the military or you can be on your own. When you're on your own, what kind of red tape is it? Do you just travel there? I mean, do you just go to a place that no normal tourist would ever go and fly to the airport and take a taxi downtown and go to a hotel? Well, yeah, that's, <laughs> that pretty much sums it up. And then you take it from there. I mean, it depends where you go and what the story is. I went to it, covered numerous wars in Africa, and there it literally was exactly what you just described. You take a plane, you go to the hotel. Your two key decisions are who will be your driver and who will be your translator. Because those two people, you're putting their, your life in their hands. I've landed at a few places where I'm just at the airport all alone. And, you know, whether it's El Salvador or, or Tehran, it's just unnerving to be alone. It must be nice to have a, a local contact that you can rely on. Absolutely. I, I remember landing in Tehran during the revolution, and there was a huge a million people in the streets demonstration against the Shah of Iran. Mm -hmm. My taxi driver couldn't get to the hotel. So I found myself walking through the, this massive crowd of people carrying my, my baby blue Samsonite suitcase in my hand, mm. trying to fight my way to the hotel, not knowing anybody. And I've been in that position a, a number of times. But that's, you know, that's what you do. When I was leaving Tehran, I remember it was like, for some reason, all the flights were arriving and leaving in the middle of the night, two o'clock in the morning or something. And my fixer had left me, and I was alone in the airport, and I thought everything was cool, but there was a little hang-up with the passport, and that made me start to think all sorts of scary things. And then when the boarding process started, it was like a lifeboat at the end of the, of the jetway. And I, I saw the French flight attendants with, with their Western outfits and, and necklines and open hair, you know, and I felt like I just got to get over into that lifeboat, and I'm out of here. Do you ever get that feeling when you're at the airport and you're just so close but so far? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, absolutely. And especially in Tehran, <laughs> during the revolution. Flying in Afghanistan, coming out of those places, I spent a lot of time there. But I've got to say, sort of, you know, when you, it's that first drink on the plane and you just hope the plane's really going to take off. Really going to take off. When you are traveling and you have the opportunity to do something, but it's only possible if you're embedded, as an ethical journalist, what concerns do you have that you're not just part of a propaganda machine? Well, I think you are part of a propaganda machine. And actually... Mm -hmm. During the Iraq War, um, NBC asked me to go to, to, with the American troops and to be embedded with them. And I said, I said no. I, I said, I don't want to do that. I'd rather be the guy that goes off on his own. From a particular perspective as a journalist, you could just say it's, it's futile. I can't be an honest journalist if I'm embedded. No, you become, you're making a war movie. If you're embedded, you're making a war movie right. because you can only film. You're only taken to certain places. You only meet certain people. For instance, when, when I went into Afghanistan after the Russians invaded, I walked from from Pakistan over the Hindu Kush mountains for three mm. weeks with the Mujahideen, who are today's, became today's Taliban. So it, was, it, was, it wasn't even with a crew. It was just me with my own camera with 30 guys walking mm. through the mountains for three weeks. That's such a different experience, obviously, than going with the American army oh, to yes. Afghanistan, <laughs> going, going and having sort of a McDonald's on the airbase, you know, <laughs> a bit different. It must be interesting from you just as a caring human being to witness suffering and death, but to be there... Not to help out, but to report on it. Do you ever get yourself in an ethical bind where 
you really should put your camera down and help, but that's not your role? That has happened to me. The, the ethical bind I found myself in more often is whether I should film something or not. Not so much helping, because usually there's other people around who can help much better than I can. Right. I'm not a medic, I'm not trained. Right. But you know, there was a, when the American troops went into Somalia, Tom Broker asked me to do a story on what's it like to die of starvation, because that's what the troops were sent there to do, to protect the food convoys from the warlords, while hundreds of people were dying of starvation a day. And I did a story, my, my producer said, let's ask a doctor, da, da, and I said, no, you can do that in New York. Let's go film somebody who's dying of starvation. And we did that, and that was a horrible, you know, morally, it was a horrible thing to do. But morally, the immediate emotions would be that's a horrible thing to do, but cerebrally, you can say you're going to raise awareness of a problem by documenting this that will motivate people and mobilize people to make a huge difference and, and save a lot of people. And that's what I said to myself, and that is what happened. But on the other hand, the other side of that coin was, here's this poor girl who I remember now, 20-year-old Fida Ibrahim, who had walked for three weeks from a town mm. called Baidoa to this feeding station in Mogadishu, and what, you know, the last thing she sees before she dies is a camera on a tripod you know, in her face. Mm. And as a matter of fact, she probably didn't see it because she was so far gone. But nevertheless, that whole concept was so, seemed so wrong. But at the same time, in that case, I thought the means justified the end. I may have been wrong. And also the guy, you know, shooting the camera and, and the reporter next to him, they had tickets in their pocket to fly home. And, you know, they could fly in and fly out. But these people who are in the middle of that, that's their reality and there's no alternative. No, that, that's exactly right. And I would say that your, your book, The War Reporter, is set in Sarajevo, and Sarajevo is one of the most rewarding places to travel now after things have settled down and people are learning to, to live with each other and, and dealing with the scars of that, that horrible war. Yeah, no, it is a beautiful place, and I've always wanted to go back to, I've always wanted to go back to all the whole, you know, I've been to the most beautiful places at the worst of times. Now I'd like to go back and just enjoy them. Of all the places you've been, Martin Fletcher, in your 30 years of war corresponding, let's say it's peace and prosperity and stability and there's tourism. Which place would you like to go back and, given those happier times, hypothetically, have a vacation? Well, I know exactly. Um, Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe. Hmm. I lived in, in Rhodesia, as it then was for two years, and then two years in South Africa, covering uh, the end of apartheid. But the geography of those places is just stunning. And the Victoria Falls, you know, I went rafting on the Zambezi River, and you can helicopter next to the Victoria Falls. It's just a beautiful, beautiful place with all the things I love, you know, camping and swimming and rafting. <laughs> and it's just a place of great beauty. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Martin Fletcher. His uh, new novel is The War Reporter. Martin Fletcher, thank you so much, and best wishes with your, your continued reporting through your novel writing. Thank you very much, Rick. Good, good evening, here's the news, and all of it is good, and the weather's good. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York City and NPR in Washington for studio help this week. You can listen in or be a caller during our next set of recording sessions. Find out what we're talking about and how you can participate. It's in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel.
Along those same lines, Europe 101 History and Art for the Traveler is a must-read for anyone who appreciates Europe's rich history and great art. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.